Let us open our Bibles to John 3. Verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus declares a fact of the doctrine of salvation to this ruler of the Jews that includes things he'd never heard before, that the love of God extended beyond just the Jewish race to the world, that it was whosoever believeth showed the evidence of eternal life, not just the Jews, that it was believing, not circumcision or keeping the law of Moses, that he would give the Son of Man to die a cruel Roman death on the cross for the redemption of his people. A number of things that Nicodemus had never heard before. There's no offer in this verse. There's no possibility in this verse. It's all a certainty and a promise of God and a declaration of God's dealings with the vessels of mercy that out of every nation, tribe, kindred, tongue, and people, God has his vessels of mercy, his vessels of honor that he made from the same fallen lump of human clay and saved them by his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The evidence of which in this particular place is believing on the Lord Jesus. For God so loved the world. Our opponents, those that misunderstand this verse, the Arminians that use this verse as one of their sugar-coated candy canes for their decisional salvation, think that the world, the word world is the key to the verse. They think world is key to interpreting God's love. Think about it. The word world is key to interpreting Christ's death. The word world is key to interpreting and drawing out of this verse a simple offer of eternal life to every person that ever lived. Of course, they have lots of exceptions. Everybody that lived for 4,000 years before Jesus Christ came to earth all those that have never heard the gospel, babies, infants, idiots, and so forth, and they come up with this whole ca all these categories of people that are accepted from their universal offer of salvation. Honest interpreters know that everything else in the verse is key to rightly understanding the word world. What a difference. They look at the verse, force an interpretation upon world that cannot be found or proven in any of the other 287 uses of it in the Bible. They force that on it, then make it interpret the rest. Whom does God love? Their interpretation of world. Who did Jesus die for? Their interpretation of world. Who has salvation freely offered to them for a simple sinner's prayer? Everybody. Because world means world, you know? And that's how they'll reason with you. That is the depth of their intelligence, and that's the depth of their sincerity and integrity. Well, it says world. You know what world means, don't you? No, I don't. Why don't you show me from a Bible that world means every single human being ever conceived, conceived world without end, including miscarriages and so forth. The word gives many trouble because they've never considered its usage in the Bible. They foolishly assume that world must mean every single human soul ever conceived. It's a shame that they do that. John used the word world 59 times in this gospel. The other gospels together, all three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, only use it 32 times. Why would anyone force world to mean every single man against what the rest of the Bible has to say? They do not care for truth but rather for a plan of salvation that exalts them right, right. and meets their agenda. Yes, 
They ignore the apostolic command to rightly divide the word of truth, which would show them that world is used with great latitude, with all kinds of meanings and shades of meanings in the Bible. World. What does a Bible, what does a dictionary say about the word world? Uh, human existence. A period of this. The earth or a region of it. The universe or a part of it. The inhabitants of the earth or a section of them. Well, that doesn't help very much either. No, it doesn't. But it does tell us that it can be a segment of the universe, it can be a part of the earth, part of the world, and it can be a segment or a sector of humanity. It doesn't have to be all of them, and it grants that as being a definition of the word world. When we say the whole world's doing it, when a kid says that, he means two kids at school are doing it. But, they, but, he, but we use the word the whole world. The whole world's gone mad because you read two newspaper articles about some of the uh, thinking in certain places. The world here in John 3.16 is a segment of mankind marked by their faith in Christ. The Bible uses the word world very widely. There's many different senses of the word world. I've precluded and canceled my effort to build a chart for every single one of them because it would be too confusing for you to follow and derive any benefit from it because here's the simple solution. The context determines the word world whenever it's used. Amen. And so you look at what it says. You, there may be a few other circumstances around it, like who is the writer and what is the point being made and what is the audience of that writer, and it may help you with the word. But otherwise, it is an endless project because there are such shades of meaning and back and forth definitions depending on where. I'll show you a few in just a moment. Seeing the words, this is how most look at the, the verse John 3, 16. Seeing the word world and God's love, it has to be everybody. Seeing the word world and the death of Christ, it has to mean everybody. They're so in love with themselves and their race that God has to love every member of mankind. Yet the word of God declares he will deny ever knowing most of them. Yet the word of God declares God's love is effectual for adoption and results in them being made kings and priests unto God. Yet the word of God declares his love cannot ever be separated from. And yet they want to press John 3.16 to say something that contradicts the rest of the Bible. By the so and that, as I taught you earlier, God's love and Christ's death are coextensive. So we know that the word world, which is attached to God's love and Christ's death, these are equally coextensive. If you find who God loves, they're the ones Christ died for. If you can identify those that Jesus died for, they're the ones God loved, and they're both the world in this particular case. The world in this particular case with a shade of meaning beyond the Jewish nation to include the Gentiles, which was part of the new revelation to Nicodemus, though obscurely and weakly stated here, which will be stated much stronger shortly. Like how much shortly? Like the next chapter when we get to the woman of Sychar or who's called the woman of Samaria. Like how about in John chapter 1, we were introduced in verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. Three uses of the word world in John 1.10. He came unto his own, his own received him not. Aha! We've got a little distinction right there between the world of John 1.10 and the Jews of John 1.11. We've got a whosoever here in verse 15. We've got a whosoever stated again in verse 16. 
In the Bible, you know that it says that uh, these are the things that all the Gentiles seek after. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 32 and 33, but the other gospel writers say, these are the things the nations of the world seek after. So world has a shade of meaning toward Gentiles because it pushes out the, 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 the scope of the sentence to be broader than just Israel. And we saw that in Revelation chapter 5, where it was out of every nation, out of every kindred, people, tongue, and and so forth, that God chose his redeemed family. We saw that there. The world cannot be broader or larger than those God loved and Christ died for. Cannot be. Because then you're applying God's love to those he doesn't love. Then you're applying Christ's death to those he didn't die for. So it can't be broader than that. It is simple and true to read it, for God so loved the world of his elect. It is simple and true to read it, for God so loved his elect out of the world. It is simple and true to read it, for God so loved all believers in the world. It can be read, and it's true and simple, to to read it, for God so loved the world of all his elect, including Gentiles. Because that's being weakly introduced here, as it was already introduced in chapter 1. The Waldensians, in their 1655 Confession of Faith, wrote this about the love of God and salvation. I quote, that God so loved the world, that is to say, those whom he has chosen out of the world. This, we're not the first ones to do this. We're not the last ones to do what we hope. We hope that this church and our young men will remember that for God so loved the world, it's the world of his elect. It's the ones that God chose out of the world. It's only the believers in the world by their evidence showing them that they are God's elect that God loved and gave his son for. Let me give you a few examples that you might want to memorize a couple of these. There's quite a few of them that show the world being used in a very limited way. My favorite is Luke 2.1. Luke 2.1 is not too far away, and here's what it says there. It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. The reason this is my favorite is because it also has the word all in it. All the world should be taxed. What dynasty of China paid taxes to the Roman government? None. Did the Cherokees pay taxes to the Roman government? Did the Incas or the Aztecs pay taxes to the Roman government? Did anyone in South America pay taxes to the Roman government? Did anyone in Russia pay taxes to the Roman government? Anyone in Japan? Anyone in Australia? Did anyone 50 years before Caesar Augustus pay taxes under the decree of Caesar Augustus? Did you ever pay taxes to Caesar Augustus? All the world. Hello? This is why it's very hard for me to even think about John 3.16 and the stuff that I've heard out of this verse is unbelievably ignorant, malicious, and blasphemous when they get done with the God they create and the Savior they have from that verse that they corrupt so badly. 30 heresies out of John 3, 14 through 21. Luke 2, 1. Lydia, if you're writing down verses you want for those poor, unsuspecting teachers at Bob Jones Elementary School, uh, Luke 2, 1. All the world, ma'am. All the world. Only a few people paid taxes to the Roman government in the world at that time, let alone the world of all time. Look at Romans 11. 
Here's another favorite. Here is where world means Gentiles as opposed to Jews. Romans chapter 11, and it's pretty clearly shown by a parallelism in Romans 11 and verse 12. You know what this chapter is about. God has cut off the Jews from certain gospel privileges and graft in the Gentiles for them. We have in verse 12, Now if the fall of them, there's a plural pronoun, be the riches of the world. Now let's look at the parallelism of what comes next in Romans eleven twelve, And the diminishing of them, that's the same plural pronoun referring to the Jews, the riches of the Gentiles. How much more their fullness. By comparing those two clauses in Romans eleven twelve, you know that the riches of the world and the riches of the Gentiles are to be compared to each other because the word world means Gentiles in this particular verse. Let's go back to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it. Well, I thought the world believed on Jesus in order to get saved by God sending his only begotten son for them. But it says the world, that means every single human being ever conceived, world without end, without exception. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth. So it hates the Lord Jesus Christ because I testify of it. Look at 6.33, John 6 and verse 33. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Did Jesus Christ come down and give life to every single person ever conceived world without end? No, he did not. Who did he give life to? Do you really want to know? I'm not asking you. Do you really want to know? He's going to tell you. But it says world in verse 33. Well, why don't we go to verse 37? All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Oh, so that's a limited world that he gives life to, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Does that sound like getting life? Does that sound like Jesus giving life to them? Absolutely. And how big is the world of John 6.33? How big is the world of John 6.51? The world of persons that God gave Jesus to save. I hate having to undo ignorant abuse of Scripture for a man-made doctrine of salvation when we should just be able to embrace John 3.16 for the wonderful words that it has to say about us, about God's elect, about those that God gave to the Son to come into this world and lay down His life for, the sheep, and not all of them are sheep, but ye are not of my sheep as I said unto you, in John chapter 10 and verse 26, I lay down my life for the sheep, but ye are not of my sheep. Why can't they read that? They love pictures of a long-haired hermaphrodite shepherd. Why don't they like the words of John chapter 10? I lay down my life for the sheep, but ye are not of my sheep as I said unto you. I've been trying to tell you that you are not my sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. That's Jesus' description of his sheep. But they're not all sheep. And when he saves the world, he only saves the world of those that God gave him. The elect world, those elected out of the world, believers in the world. Look at John 7 and verse 4. You know, I told you there were 59 in the Gospel of John. Do you know how long we could do this? 
Not a single one can be shown to be every single person ever conceived in the human race world without end. John 7, verse 4. Jesus' brethren are talking to him and pushing him to go to Jerusalem. They said, For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. What did his brethren mean? That he should take a flight to North America, to the Western Hemisphere? That he should go to the British Isles? Who was he supposed to show himself to? Just a few more Jews. That's all, that's all they meant. Just a few more Jews. Why don't you go to Jerusalem and show yourself to the world? Do you see? You know what? They think the key to John 3.16 is the word world. You know, and which definition are you going to put on it? The key to John 3.16 is every, everything else that is stated in John 3.16 and how it interprets the word world for us. Because it's context that determines world. World doesn't determine context. Look at John 18.20 and have Jesus use it the same way. That, that his brethren used it to him in John 7.4 and John 18.20. There's so many of these. Jesus answered him. This is the high priest asked Jesus of his disciples, John 18.19, and of his doctrine, John 18.20, Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. Really? How big was that world? Let's go to chapter 12. Very small Jewish world. John chapter 12 and verse 19. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world has gone after him. What they really mean? About 1% of the Jews. You say, well, could it be 10%? You really think there's 10% of the Jews that believed on Jesus Christ? Where were they? How about the enemies of the apostles in Acts chapter 17 and verse 6 where they use the same language and they said that the man has come here who has turned the world upside down. Do you know what that world was? 1% of the Gentiles. Paul had only turned the world upside down for a very few people in a very small part of the Roman Empire, which was only a small part of the whole world. And so we have so many examples like this that go on and on about the word world, and it is limited by its context. When you go to 1 John 2, 2, it says that he was the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's 2, 2. In 5:19, the same writer says, we know that the whole world lieth in wickedness. See, I don't want to stop on each one of these right now and tell you what each world means. I want you to be thinking about John 3, 16, that that word world is not where we hang the doctrine of John 3.16. We hang it on everything else in John 3.16 and force the word world to match what else is said, just like we would in any of those other places. Anyone listening to this tape or hearing this later or who wants to argue about it, send one, send one occurrence of the word world in the entire Bible where it means unequivocally every single person ever conceived in the human race, including miscarriages, world without end, no exceptions. My computer inbox is going to be empty for a long time. <laughs> is giving a sense to the word world any different than how we give a sense to key words in other places like Hebrews 4.12? For the word of God is quick and powerful. What words under consideration? Do you know the work we go through to show that that cannot be the written word of God, that that is the living word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ? 
We do it by internal content, and we do it by context around it, the same way we do it here. This is rightly dividing the word of truth. When Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4 says, ye are fallen from grace. Do you know the work that we have to go through to prove that that falling from grace is only up here in their understandings, in their doctrine, not actually falling out of the book of life and losing your eternal life? We have to, go, we have to do that because that's rightly dividing the word of truth. We understand the world here to be the body of God's elect, including Gentiles. By the use of the word world, there's no reason to limit it to just the Jewish world because he's introduced it to Nicodemus and he's trying to show Nicodemus things that Nicodemus didn't know. And one of the things Nicodemus didn't know is that the salvation of God was to be extended to other nations. You know, we're going to run into it very quickly in John 10, 16, that wonderful verse that says, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold... Them also I must bring. John chapter 11 and verse 52. That one man must die for this nation and not for this nation only, but that all the children of God should be gathered together from all the nations. It's this writer, it's this writer, this gospel writer that gave us Revelation chapter 5 about the everlasting gospel being preached to all nations and God choosing his elect out of every nation, out of every kindred, out of every people, out of every tongue. It's this writer that does that. Jesus has already introduced the difference between the word world and the, and the Jews in John 1, 10 and 11. John served the Jews, and so we understand, like in 1 John 2, 2, when John says, not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world, that he's meaning the elect among the Gentiles as well. Much more could be said on that. We'll say it later. I have to, for, to accomplish anything today. In, the, in what I want to accomplish, I have to keep moving on to some other words. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. That world is the world of his elect. The elect chosen out of the world. The believers in the world. All of God's elect in the world, including Gentiles. However you want to, it doesn't matter. Those shades of meaning that he would have extended to Nicodemus. But what we can do is we can limit the word world, and we have to, to make, for the Bible to make sense. And for this verse to be rightly divided, it's limited to God's elect that God gave to Jesus Christ. Wherever we find those that Jesus Christ came to die for in the Gospel of John, he refers to them as those given to me by my Father. Those are the elect. Those are all that Jesus died for. Jesus didn't die for a single person that wasn't elect. God only loved the elect. He didn't love anyone beyond the elect. Both groups are coextensive because it says, for God so loved the world that he gave. Those two are equal groups of people and they're God's elect. For God so loved the world that he gave. That. Introducing a clause expressing the result or consequence of what is stated in the principal clause. The principal clause is, for God so loved the world. This is stating the result or the consequence of that love, and that was to give his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. That little word, so, I was told at break time, and I, I, know, I knew this would happen. Some of you have thought that the little word, so, is like an intensive word, meaning God loved the world so very, very, very much. No, God loved the world this way, is all the word, so, means. And we find out, that we find out what way when we find the word, that. Go look it up. So and that, for God so loved the world that. And here's, here's the demonstration of his love. And this should make perfectly good sense with me choosing 1 John 4 to open this second service for a different reason, but where it said God manifested his love toward us. How did he show us 
the extent of his love, the scope of his love, the magnitude of his love, but by sending his son. He made it manifest to us. That's what the word that means as it introduces this next clause. God's love was such that he sent his only begotten son to die for the objects of that love. We measure love. Let's, take, let's think about it just for a moment as we think about love. We measure love by what a person gives in proportion to ability, custom, and so forth. Think ability. We measure love, and correctly so, by how much you give in comparison to your ability to give. Did Jesus rank a widow's giving as greater How did he do that? Because she gave everything she had. She wasn't giving some small percentage of a great amount of wealth that wouldn't even damage them or touch them. So Jesus made that comparison, and we should make that comparison when we think about our relationship to other people. You know, I said earlier that if you you do something for a brother and it doesn't cost you, then it's not really love. It's, It's not even measurable. If it doesn't cost you something, it's got, it's got to cost you something, some time, some emotion, some money, some effort, thinkability. Jesus told us that we should think about ability to give when we look at a person's gifts. Think custom. Jesus drew a distinction of dying for friends. Do some men lay down their lives for their friends? It does happen from time to time. It, it does. It's still rare. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Romans 5, 7. But what about God? I just want you to think a little bit about he gave his son. Do you want to measure it by cost and ability? What else could he have given that would have been higher than his only begotten son? An angel? Are you kidding me? Can we use the word only with angels since there's innumerable company of them? He had an only begotten son. He gave his only begotten son. Who did he give it for? His friends? His enemies. Wow. For God so loved the world, God loved the world this way that he gave his only begotten son. That is overpowering. Matthew 3.17, this is what God thundered from heaven when Jesus was baptized, according to Matthew's account. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. He gave that son. That is love. That's God's love for us. God gave. He didn't offer. Do you understand this? That when you go through the Bible, God didn't offer eternal life to anyone. God didn't offer his son to anyone. His son offered himself without spot to God. There is an offering in the Bible. Jesus offered himself to God. Jesus gave himself an offering for sin. Do you know what the Bible says about it? He shall see the travail of his soul. Come on, son. He shall be satisfied. There is an acceptance. There's an offer, and there's an acceptance of it. The offering is to God, and God accepted it. And by accepting Christ and having put us in Christ, it made us accepted in the beloved. It's not us accepting God. It's not us accepting Jesus because he wasn't offered to us. He was offered to God. This is all in the Bible with countless verses for it. If you want to know the sermon, it's called Eternal Life as a Gift. Go punch it into the search box on our website. 
I'm looking at a scatter of verses on every one of these points. God gave his elect to Jesus Christ in an eternal covenant. The Bible says so. God gave his son Jesus Christ to die in their place before the foundation of the world by his foreordination. 1 Peter 1.20 and countless other verses. God gave eternal life and legal justification and vital regeneration to each one of those that he gave to the son. There's not a remote chance that even one of God's elect will die without salvation. If God offered eternal life, no one would take it. If God offered eternal life, no one could take it. Based on what the Bible says, there is no offer to man. Jesus offered himself without spot to God through the eternal spirit. Hebrews 9, 12 through 14. Read about it. That's the offering of salvation. And that offering was accepted by Almighty God on our behalf because he'd been foreordained before the foundation of the world to die just that way for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. His only begotten son. We understand that son differently than most. This is the incarnate word. We have already learned by the time we get to John 3 and verse 16, in chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then in verse 14, and the word was made flesh. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us on earth. Visible, six foot or so, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. What glory? The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. That is the Son of God. Right. That is incarnate sonship. We believe that. It's stated right here in John 3, 16, he gave his only begotten Son. There is no begotten Son in the Trinity. How in the world can God beget God? I don't believe in any begotten God. If you want to believe in a begotten God, there's plenty of places in town that believe in the New American Standard Version that in John 1.18, they have a begotten God. Our God is not begotten. The Son is begotten. And He's begotten in His human nature, in the womb of Mary. So that that thing, that holy thing, these are the words of Gabriel the angel, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Until there was a man on earth that was God in the flesh, God didn't have a son. He was God the Word. We've been through that so many times. Let me share a couple other things with you. The New American Standard Bible in John 1.18. Let's look at it. It's close by. We should be at John 3. John 1.18. No man hath seen God at any time. Did we read that earlier this service from 1 John chapter 4? Because it's the same writer. Does anyone else talk like this? No. Can God maintain the independence of the writers of Scripture and yet inspire every single word? Amen. Absolutely. Can you see their personalities and their method of writing come through? Absolutely. Do the Psalms sound like Romans? David told you this morning that they're different. John 1.18, no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. God was revealed by the express image of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the Son of God. He revealed the most you're ever going to know about God is through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how the New World Translation and the New American Standard Bible goes. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten God which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Whoa! Say that again? The only begotten God. Sorry. I need to hear that again. I, I, I don't think you'd say that. That's blasphemy. 
the only begotten God. No member of the Godhead is begotten. The man Christ Jesus was begotten. The English Standard Version. I sent you a little notification recently. Did you celebrate? That they had now finalized their work and they wouldn't make any more changes to it. But they forgot to get the right man killing Goliath in the Old Testament. And they forgot to get the quotation from Malachi corrected in Mark 1-2. Plus a host of other problems. But here's the one in John 1-18. Here's how the ESV does it. No man has seen God at any time. The only God who is at the Father's side. The only God. Now, what do you mean the only God? Who is the Father then? If he's the only God, is the Father God? Or is the Father not God? If he's the only God and he's at the Father's side, is the Father greater? It must be because he's at the Father's... Uh, nonsense. The International Standard Version, not the NIV, but the International Standard Version, the unique God who is close to the Father's side. We don't have God close to God. We don't have God nuzzling up next to God in heaven. We have the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, who is in the bosom of the Father, who's right there with God at his side, sitting on a throne at his right hand. Some teach that if God... here's. If you let people know about the doctrine of incarnate sonship, here's one of the things that they'll argue from a verse like John 3.16. Some teach that if God gave only the God-man, Jesus the Christ, he gave little. I say, how much more could he give? An eternally generated son. How would God give God? Would you please explain that to me? How would God give God? Did God die? How did God die? What kind of blood did God shed since God has no blood? And on and on we could go. There has been a constant effort to minimize the glory of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to defend the glory of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a man seated at the right hand of God in heaven. He has a body that is glorified. You'll be able to see his wounds. He is our Savior and our Lord, and he rules this universe. He is our brother. We are connected to him. We have the same. We're joint heirs with him. We're the sons of God, similar to him. We're being conformed to his image. He is the express image of God. They want God emanating another God in eternity to come and die as son. The blasphemers deny scripture to confuse the Godhead by eternal subject, eternal sonship. God didn't die on the cross. Only the human nature of Jesus Christ died on the cross. Jesus Christ's work on earth was so great, God promoted him far above all other beings in the universe. The entire universe reports to him with God only accepted, but I want you to notice that God is accepted. If anybody ever asks you, is the Son subordinate to God? Absolutely. Is the Son subordinate to the Father? Absolutely. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28 says so, that the Son must be subject to the Father, that God may be all in all. Because Jesus Christ is not God only. Jesus Christ is a God-man. And in his human nature, he is subject and subordinate to the Father. 
Oh, thank you, Lord, for showing us stupid little business majors a few things from your word. Amen. We just want to read it and believe it. Amen. Rightly divide it and believe it. The Father loves the Son and given him rule over all. Look at John 3 before we can get out of it. I'm quoting to you from verse 35. Look at John 3, 35. They say that God didn't give very much if he gave an incarnate son. The Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hand. And it repeats this in the Gospels. The man Christ Jesus is the pinnacle of the universe. Do you know what anyone says to the devil? Since the devil was previously the greatest created being in the universe, the Lord rebuked thee. Do you think the Lord Jesus Christ is going to have any trouble with the devil in the day of judgment? Not a chance. Is he able to say even on earth in humiliation, get thee behind me, Satan. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Is he able to quote scripture to the devil like that? Amen, yes he is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth. Now we've got another that. Introducing a clause expressing purpose and aim or desire. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That was the end, the desire, the the aim of the whole thing of God's love and sending Christ was for believers to have guaranteed salvation. That is all that it is saying. Whosoever believeth, anyone that believes, look up the word whosoever. It means whoever. It means any that. Anyone that does. That's all it means. It's just a normal pronoun. It's just a long one that you don't use very many times. But it's just stating a fact. God loved the world of his elect, so he sent his son to die for them to guarantee the eternal life of all believers. Well, why does he stick believing in there? If you want to come at me with that question, if you want to come at me with that question, why does he use the word belief? It sounds like just praying a simple sinner's prayer is going to get you to heaven. Then I want you to go listen to a sermon called Salvation by Works on our website that will show you that instead of the word belief, every other virtue of the New Testament is included as evidence of eternal life. And that if you've only got faith, you've got no more than a devil. Why does John use the word belief then? Because John wanted to start with the elementary act of obedience of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ to assure believers of their eternal life and to encourage them to believe more. How do I know that was in the heart and mind of John? Because he wrote it. In 1 John 5, 13, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. To encourage believers to believe more for greater assurance. But belief by itself, as soon as you go to another book of the Bible or another chapter of 1 John or other chapters of John, no gospel is going to condemn false believers as many times as John is. You wait till I'm done with the gospel of John. I've already shared them with you. They're already in the last three verses of chapter 2 that there were those that believed on him for his miracles, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew what was in them. They were not sincere. We're going, to have, we're going to have occasion after occasion. The belief is the evidence of eternal life. Only the elect believe. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. The Bible tells us about our normal, depraved, and inherent, corrupt nature. 
When we believe, it shows the work of God already in us. Haven't we already covered that before we get to John 3.16? Except a man be born again, he can't even see the kingdom of God. Well, who's the king of the kingdom? The Lord Jesus Christ. Is believing on the Lord Jesus Christ what John 3.16 is talking about? Yes. Well, until he's born again, he can't see the king of the kingdom to believe on him. And that's already been taught before we get to verse 16. It's been taught in chapter 1. It's been taught in chapter 3 which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. When someone sees the king and believes on him, in the way that John 3.16 is describing, they're already born again. It's the evidence of eternal life. The verse is just stating a fact. God so loved the believers in all the world of every creed, of every kind, nation, tongue, and people that he elected, that he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for them to guarantee their final salvation without a single one of them being lost. It's a statement of fact, and the statement of fact is around this belief in the center because that's John's purpose to exalt belief. Second time today, if you go to the epistle of James, James is not to promote belief. James is is, is against carnal Christianity and believing without works, and he doesn't give faith any credence. Can faith save him is a rhetorical question that James asks. Can faith save him? No. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. That's what James teaches. And you know what? If you go into 1 John and you get away from 5.13, you get away from 5.1, you get away from 4.15, you're going to find out that it's love of the brethren that proves salvation. You're going to find out that it's keeping God's commandments that proves salvation. You're going to find out that, it, that it's righteous living that proves God's salvation. You're going to find out that if you sin, you're not born again. Now, you want to play games with the Word of God? and try to tell me about some little sinner's prayer in John 3.16 and some offer of salvation, that this, this belief is the condition in order to get saved? No, it's the evidence of those that are saved. It's the evidence of the elect. The minute you take that, I'm going to show you that you make everything else a condition. But see, I'm not afraid of making everything else the evidence. In fact, I love it. It's God's word. It's because God has shown us the truth that reconciles the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man that they say is impossible to reconcile. God is absolutely sovereign as the potter over the clay, and yet we better be working with all our, does it say, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? We better be working with all our might to have the evidence that we are the clay of the vessels of honor. Real faith, real believers, do things to show their faith is legitimate and certain evidence. Remember, Philip and the eunuch, if thou believest with all thine heart, faith without works is dead, continuing in his word. John 8, 31, then are ye my disciples indeed. Faith which worketh by love, Galatians 5, 6, the evidence of election, the work of faith the labor of love, the patience of hope. Why does it say in 2 Peter chapter 1, if you really want to make your election sure, 
if you really want to know that you're going to heaven, you've got to do some addition. You've got to add seven things to what? Faith. Because what is insufficient by itself is evidence. Faith. But it's the start. And you know, it's the one thing that, that it's the one overriding thing that binds us all together is our belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And so that is emphasized, especially in John's writings. You can't find it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Especially in John's writings, and he told us why. Because he wanted to encourage those that believed in the Son of God to know that they had eternal life and to encourage them even more. But even in the process of encouraging them, there are many verses about loving the brethren, living righteously, keeping God's commandments, and not sinning. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. The rich, by being willing to communicate and ready to distribute of their wealth, lay up and store a good foundation against the time to come, and they lay hold of eternal life. That's the word of God. You sound like you're a Catholic priest begging for candle purchases. Do I really? You didn't listen to very much. Hebrews 5, 9. He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Oh, it's the word obey. Yes, because it's all wrapped up together. All of these are evidences of the work of God in us. And it identifies us as the elect of God, the elect out of the world, out of every nation, kindred, tongue, people, that God loved and sent his son to guarantee their salvation. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ the Lord Jesus Christ of the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ of the Bible. He is a great divider. There was a great division among the Jews. We're going to run into it several times where it will specifically say, and there was a division among the Jews because of him. Jesus causes division. The real Jesus. Now, if you preach the world's Jesus, you can get along with anyone. Should not perish. Bible perishing includes natural disaster. What does the word perish mean? To come to a violent, sudden, and untimely end. To suffer destruction. Bible perishing includes losing a bodily member. You know, it'd be better, it'd be better to cut out your right eye and cast it from you that it would perish rather than you go to hell. Drowning in a storm. Master, we perish! Remember? The apostles thinking the Lord had forgot about them. Just giving them a little trial. There is a perishing that's eternal in nature and it's coming. Listen to these words. And I say unto you, my friends, you think I'm hard? Lord, I'd never want to be even a gram harder than you. But I don't want to come short of you so that they can blame me. And I say unto you, my friends, Fear not them which kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. That is the Jesus of the Bible. That's Luke 12, 4 and 5. I say unto you, my friends, if Jesus talks to his friends that way, do you want to hear him talk to his enemies? 
I'll give you one. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? Matthew 23, 33. There's a perishing that's coming. The sheep are going to be on his right hand, the goats on his left. He's going to identify the sheep on his right hand as believing in Jesus? No. He's going to identify the sheep on his right hand as having shown brotherly love. Because God cannot be seen, but God is love. And when we show love to our brethren, especially to the least of these, our brethren, then it shows God's love perfected in us. He will identify the sheep at his right hand, Matthew 25, 31 through 46, as showing brotherly love to the least of those that believe on him. On his left, you didn't show love in my name to the least of these, my brethren. And so you are going to the place that was prepared for the devil and his angels, where they are tormented forever and ever. That day is coming. It is not preached anymore. No one wants to hear about hell. Do you think I like preaching about hell? If I didn't believe the Bible. I'd love to get rid of hell. That's my flesh speaking. I wish there was annihilation. Annihilation is a joke. Annihilation's a gift. Annihilation's a blessing. How many times a day do you wish you were annihilated? Somebody smile. You know, you know what I mean? If, we could just, if I could just make it all go away. Don't you, anybody ever say things like that or think things like that? Well, that's annihilation. Everything went away. I don't have any more feeling. I don't have any more memory. I don't have any more anything. Well, that's a huge blessing, Charles Taze Russell. No wonder that the Jehovah's Witnesses are one of the fastest growing cult. If we were to start preaching that, and yeah, we'd get some followers too. And it's very popular. It's very popular right now. But my dear brethren, did you read about that rich man in hell last night? There's a great gulf fixed between the two of them so that there cannot be any moving back and forth from either place. And that that rich man during his life had his good things, but now he was tormented. And Lazarus had his bad things in this life, but now he is comforted. Amen. There is a huge difference coming. Right. It is going to be the reversal of all fortunes. Psalm 49, Adam Green, you think you like Psalm 49? You know there's only one good verse in that thing. It's verse 15. But God shall redeem my soul from the power of the grave. God is going to resurrect us, and he will not lose a single one. I shall raise it up again at the last day. Do you know what this John 3.16 is telling us? That God's love, that love that was everlasting from the back end, that is everlasting to the front end. Do you know what everlasting loves means? Love that lasts forever. Right. Now that's deep. Love that lasts forever. He will not lose a single one of us. For God so loved, meaning he's going to show how he demonstrated his love. For God so loved the world of his elect and the believers in him in all nations that he gave his only begotten son. He couldn't give anything greater that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, will not go to hell, but shall have everlasting life. Is there really a hell? Ask the rich man. Is there really a hell? Ask the devils who fell down and worshiped Jesus Christ when he was on earth and asked him, Art thou come to torment us before the time? They know there is eternal torment coming. Do you think the devils would be afraid of annihilation? Ask Revelation chapter 20. Do you know who wrote Revelation 20? This beloved disciple. Do you know what he said? And whosoever was not found written in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. That is perishing. 
That is perishing in the Bible. Eternal torment prepared for the devil and his angels. Only a few want to talk about it. Is hell no longer preached because we have proven that it doesn't exist? I'm talking about the Christian world. Or is hell no longer preached because we don't want to deal with its terror? If we could, we should deny that it exists because its terror is far too much. But I can't, so I won't. It's in the Word of God. It's now a common swear word used to describe insignificant things. Don't play with that word. Paul knew the terror of the Lord, so he persuaded men by the terror of the Lord. That is godly New Testament and fits perfectly with the love of God for us because he has saved us from his terror by pouring out his terror on the Lord Jesus Christ. The only terror we should fear is having to give an account of wasted lives by squandering God's grace. Perilous times, the last days, tell us that sound doctrine is rejected. The doctrine of hell doesn't work for megachurches. You should know that. Jesus gives eternal life, so his sheep cannot perish this way. Glory to God. John 10, 28, speaking of his sheep. Let me go, let me go all the way back to verse 26. Maybe you can remember it, Rachel. But ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. John 10, 26. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And they shall never perish. And they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Yes! John 3.16 is locked up, front end, back end, all side doors are locked up. It is the elect in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world and the very same number that's going to be given eternal life in the end and delivered from the lake of fire. Same number, not a single one lost. Thank you, Lord! And to think every time that I heard Just As I Am played, at the end of a service, he'd get nervous inside and some man in the pulpit would tell me to do something that I needed to do in order to get my name written in the book of life, and there was no assurance in that system of salvation, then God comes along and tells me he's taken care of it all. Just live for me, son. Just live for me. Love me. It'll show that I loved you first. Live for me. It'll show that Christ died for you first. Every one of you that have testified to me that you found your greatest comfort and assurance of eternal life was hearing about the doctrine of election and God's predestinating purpose that has locked you up in Christ blesses my soul. The opposite of perishing eternally in the lake of fire is everlasting life with God. Life that lasts forever with the God of heaven. Everlasting life, living forever with God as his son and joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. Sounds pretty good. 
sounds too good to try to describe and embellish or lift up except to declare it in the words that the Bible uses. I hope that you enjoyed reading 1 Corinthians 15 last night. You know the reason why we die is to get this carcass in the ground because until a seed gets planted, it can't sprout the new tree. Can't have a new tree till I get this one buried. If we would just if we would embrace the love of God and pray like Matthew did for us a few minutes ago for the Holy Spirit to reveal to us all the dimensions of the love of Christ, we'd be filled with all the fullness of God and we would embrace death as a pleasure and an opportunity like all the martyrs did, even though they went painfully. Oh Lord, give us that peace and give us that confidence and give us that knowledge of thy love for us and thy son's love for us that we might embrace eternal life and lay hold of it. Our bodies are going to be glorified by His almighty power by which He is able to convert everything to His use. As Philippians 3, 20 and 21 describe, Jesus told the sisters of Lazarus in John chapter 11 and verse 25, words that we'll come to in a few weeks. John eleven twenty five, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Notice that it says, whosoever liveth and believeth. Life comes before the believing. Every time you read John, don't forget to look around and see what you can learn. Thank you, Heavenly Father. The gospel helps believers know they have eternal life. The purpose of God sending his son to die for us and the outcome of God's love for us is that we should never perish, but have everlasting life. Notice in John 3.16, Jesus didn't pray with Nicodemus or play for him just as I am. He didn't ask him to, Nicodemus, pray after me. None of that stuff. The value of the verse is evidence for those to be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you comprehend and appreciate this gift by God's loving mercy to rebels? God exalted his love toward us by loving us while we were his enemies. He did not merely acquit or clear us of our great guilt and punishment. We're not just acquitted. We're not just cleared. We're not just justified. We are adopted as his sons and part of his family. Do you know that there's a family in heaven and in earth? Most are already in heaven. There's a few of us left on earth. Do you know the name of that family? the sons of God. Paul prayed about it in Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. This reversal of fortune, noting both directions, is incomprehensibly great. What we've been saved from, what we've been saved to, incomprehensibly great. By the love of God, the death of Christ, evidenced by our faith and those good works that we add to our faith. That is what John 3.16 teaches us. That is what John 3.16, that is what Jesus laid on Nicodemus. I say to you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Be baptized in his glorious name. Love him and his Father. Serve him with joy and trembling. And praise him. I close with Psalm 63 and verse 13. From the heart of a man that knew about his coming son, here are the simple short words. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee.
May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.